Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And today we have with us in our studio Professor Greg Clark. Professor Greg Clark is a UK-based urban leadership and sustainable urban transition expert who is in Australia to present a free lecture at the University of Melbourne's Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning titled A National Urban Policy for Australia, What We Can Learn from Global Experience. That will pose questions about how national policy in Australia might better respond, or might best respond rather, to the post-pandemic challenge of a rapidly, rapidly increasing urban population. He's recognised, he's a recognised authority rather on cities, urban leadership and investment in sustainable urban transition. Professor Clark has worked with more than three in 300 cities, 40 national governments and 20 multilateral institutions and multiple global corporates and investors across the world. He is a board member of Transport for London. He chairs Transport for London's uh, land and senior, he's, he's sorry, he's, he chairs TFL's land and, and he's a senior advisor to NLA, New London Architecture, and he's also an honorary professor of urban innovation at Strathclyde University, which I believe is in Scotland. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design Professor Greg Clark. Thank you very much, Branko. It's a pleasure to be here. And Strathclyde is in university, is in uh, Scotland. Strathclyde is in Glasgow, yeah. Scotland's world city. That's very, very Scottish. Okay, so... Um, the lecture actually was the last night, wasn't it? It was indeed. The lecture was last night. How did it go? What did you get out of it? And what were your impressions? Well, it was very interesting for me to be asked to address the question of, you know, will Australia have a new national urban policy and what should it be? Um, I used to do a huge amount of work with national governments all over the world on how they could create a national urban policy. That hasn't happened for at least 10 years, partly because national governments have been consumed by other things, and partly because national urban policies are not in the same vogue that they were uh, a number of years ago. So it was firstly intriguing, and in the end it was very enthusing to discuss this. And I, I took as the context for this, not just the pandemic and the change process that's uh, uh, evolved from that, I also took from this the, this the the I, I also took the long run changes that are already happening in Australia, the economic transition, the social transition, the environmental transition, and in that context, we talked a lot about the spatial transition that's happening in Australia. But obviously, the thing that gave this lecture its juice last night was the fact that we now have a Commonwealth government that's very committed to Australian cities and a prime minister who is personally extremely committed to this agenda, a Commonwealth government that's aligned with the uh, policy orientation of the state governments in Australia. And therefore there's half a chance that you might get some coherence between national level thinking and state level thinking on the future of Australian cities. And that was the context for the discussion. Um, we had a full lecture house at the University of Melbourne last night 
we unusually decided to do some Q&A and that went on for nearly an hour. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was testing and challenging, but in the end, it was the most enjoyable evening. I've got to say that you've come to this country this time (laughs) in a very opportune time. I mean, the, the, the conversations around urbanization and urban planning have never been so robust as they have been in the past, I'd say, five or six years, um, which is, I guess, good to see and also a bit depressing because I probably should have been 50, 60 years ago. On your website, it says, or you write or someone's written, um, what makes a city is people, is, is people concentration. Proximity between people induces deep interactions that create network effects. Thus, cities accelerate ideas, foster participation and drive fusions. The scale of population, activities and revenues also supports common services and infrastructures and drives specialisation, medicine, science, art, sport, media, leisure, and of course, business. Thus, cities enhance social mobility, increase productivity, deepen civic capital and spur creativity. The magic of cities is that they magnify and multiply those interactions with this concentration superpower. It's a great explanation, but do you think that humans, we humans, um, have forgotten this? And simply by living and existing in our cities, um, that we've, what's the word? I, I hate to use the term, but you know, it's the familiarity breeds contempt. That, that's 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 a term I'm looking for. Um, do you think that we've forgotten um, the 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 mag- what is the magic of cities and how can it be put back and how can it be or turned back on if that's the right term? Yes, well, you, you won't be surprised to hear that I'm an unabashed enthusiast for cities. I describe myself as an urbanist. I believe that cities are the greatest invention of humankind and that I believe that there is no version of a successful future for the human race that doesn't involve cities. And I described last night in the lecture that I believe we're entering the fifth decade of the century of the city, that if you take the date 1980 as the starting point of this century and you project forward to 2080, over that period, Branco, we're moving from 40% to 80% of human beings living in cities. That's a doubling from 2.3 billion to 9.3 billion living in cities. That's a quadrupling from 275 cities of 1 million people or more to 1,600 cities of 1 million or more. That's a multiplication by six of the number of cities over 1 million. This is the unique century that we're living in, a anthropological trek of humankind towards the city is the moment in which we now live. And it provides us with not just extraordinary opportunities to do the right things in relation to our planet, but also to be productive, to be humane, to be inclusive and to uh, enable cities to fulfill their promise. But it's also a deep responsibility that I believe we share to make cities work. And I contrasted in the lecture last night, the difference not between choosing to have urbanization 
or not have urbanization, which I believe is not a choice for us, but, uh, but, but rather how we have urbanization and whether we get good urbanization or bad urbanization. At the heart of my thesis is the idea that cities can be good for us if we embrace good urbanization. And good urbanization, in my way of thinking, is inclusive in the sense that it embraces mixed income. It opts for desegregated or unsegregated cities. It combines medium density, high amenity, well-designed uh, built environment, enabled by high capacity public transport systems so that we can decarbonize our cities by making them clean, compact and connected. It enables those cities to be multi-centered or polycentric if you wish to lose that language. And that the only thing that's holding us back from this is the poverty of imagination that prevents us from seeing how cities of this kind can emerge. And I agree with you that if you like, there's a kind of collective amnesia happening, whereby we fail to remember that it's actually the process of urbanization that has produced so many of the innovations that has saved humanity from previous disasters, whether it's the control of cholera and typhoid, whether, whether it's the invention of the underground railway or the water closet or, or, or the elevator or other technologies that we now think of as mundane. These technologies are the product of cities, of designers and urbanization. Cities are our friends. And the risk we face at the moment is that in some countries in the world, following the pandemic, there's the spread of, I think, a, an unfortunate myth that we can somehow unbundle our cities through working from home or distance learning or remote medicine or online retail and consumption, and that actually technology will lead us into a de-urbanized world and somehow the idea that this would be better for us. I think it's wrong. And I think it's my mission and the mission of others to challenge that myth. I mean, you, you spoke about a lot of a, a lot of really good things there, a lot of advantages, There's a lot of also disadvantages of living in cities, as you're probably aware. You, um, you, 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 you've spoken about the poverty of of imagination, um, I, 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 I may, I may add, add to that the the, the the poverty of investment. While we're at it, um, something that we suffer from here in Australia um, quite a bit, uh, unfortunately. But um, can you give me an example of, of a city in the world that you would say has been done to the best possible um, way, or plan the best possible way, rather? Yeah. Well, let me just start by saying that I think that the poverty of investment is a product of the poverty of imagination. And I think that uh, the reason we don't invest is because we forget what the benefits of the city are. And I think also that, as I've said, it's possible to have both good urbanization and bad urbanization. And the bad urbanization is the one that's full of the side effects 
the the, uh, the unintended consequences, the negative externalities, the frictions, the disadvantages are all associated with bad urbanization. The magic of cities is unleashed by good urbanization, and that's the, the mode we need to follow. And there's more than one way of having good urbanization. So one model of that is the model that we see in the Asia Pacific, which is exemplified at different levels of scale by Tokyo, by Seoul, by Hong Kong, by Singapore, and by Taipei. Five cities, one of them 36 million, another one less than 3 million, and each of them different in size, but each of them combining what I think is the core, uh, what we might call the core vernacular of the successful Asian city, which is high density, very high amenity living with excellent urban design uh, on the ground floor, high provision of public space, enabled by very high public transport capacity that enables people to live a distance away from one or more city centers where there's a cluster of economic activities and amenities, but to have a predictable and reliable journey between them that enables the density not to be brutalistic or to be dominating, but enables the density simply to be an efficient way of having a productive life supported by amenity. So that is the Asian version of good urbanization. There's also a European version of good urbanization in Paris, in Vienna, in Stockholm, in Barcelona, where medium density, six to eight to 10 story high apartment living is supported by amazing street life on the ground floor. Again, resourced and supported by high capacity public transport that enables you to move seamlessly between different villages and towns within a city, coming in and out of one or more centers to do specialized activities in those centers, including work, but not only work, also including science and education and art and culture and creativity, but to live in this medium density model that is an efficient use of urban land, but at the same time is capable of being socially inclusive and environmentally responsible at the same time. So that's the European version. And you see that in Paris, Vienna, Stockholm, Barcelona, and indeed many other European cities. And then there's also a kind of Latin American version of this good urbanization that we see a little bit now in places like Santiago, you might be able to say Quito has some examples of this. We certainly see it in the remodeled Medellin, where you have a community-based approach to developing neighborhoods and districts where uh, public transport is increasingly available to support them and to reinforce them. And this gives rise to a wide range of residential choices. The problem with the Latin American model is that it hasn't yet figured out that it needs to be mixed income at the neighborhood level, which is the thing that, that we really need to solve there. Now, I haven't said anything about North America, and partly that's because I think North American cities on the whole do not conform to good urbanization models. I think they're largely bad urbanization models, partly because of car dependence, partly because of the tendency to, to want to live in the, 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 the quarter acre block 
with the private home and, and the large yard, which we see in certain parts of, of North America. But in Toronto, in, in Chicago, in New York, in Philadelphia, increasingly in Boston, sometimes now in Miami. We see the beginnings in, in Denver and in Phoenix. And we've certainly seen some examples of this in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Portland and Seattle and Vancouver. There are elements of this good urbanization, which are about combining that medium density, high amenity living with some kind of public transport system. Obviously, New York is the best example of a good public transport system in North America. But in North America, we've had cities that have evolved at different times. Many of them have evolved, particularly in this car dependent era of the second half of the 20th century. And there, there's a lot of reform that needs to be done. It goes without saying, I think, Branko, that what I'm suggesting is that Australian cities also offer a mixed picture. Some elements of good urbanisation are present in Australian cities with the densification in the downtowns, the mixture of activities between wealth creation, knowledge creation, experience creation. But too much of Australian cities are producing low density, low amenity, high commute time suburbs. And one of the reasons that Australian cities are sort of parodying or copying the North American approach to the post-pandemic reality, where people are working more remotely, working more from home, sleepwalking into a permanent productivity deficit, is because of the very poor experience of transport that has led too many Australian people living in cities to suffer lengthy commutes that are unacceptable. And therefore, if they feel they're being given the choice not to have to commute and instead to work from home, they will do. But the problem is they're foregoing so many social and economic advantages by doing that. You know, in Australia, we have a, dare I call it a widening gap, between you know supply and demand of housing in cities, um, I, I I cannot remember ever reading reports in Australia at least of people living in their cars and tents, okay, which we're seeing now here. Um, that's uh, I, I don't want to sound alarmist, but <laughs> I can't think of any other word about crisis really when it comes to housing. Um, so the you know the, there there is this huge demand of, of of for housing, but the supply isn't there. You've talked about government led solutions over over the years for this kind of problem. Um, can you explain what you think could be done uh, in situations like we we're finding ourselves here in in, in Australia? Um, sure, I'm happy to do that. But let's just start by describing what the problem is in Australia. Because I, I, what I would say is that the, 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 the manifestation of bad urbanization that we see, not just in Australia, but in many, many cities around the world, is the failure to anticipate that the fruits of success will be population growth. And in nearly all cities that succeed, and Australian cities are really attractive cities that offer this compelling lifestyle narrative, about, you know, come to Australian cities and enjoy the fruits of the world. You know, great cities with amazing access 
to nature, whether it's forests or rivers or whether it's beaches, come to Australian cities and enjoy the, you know, the freedom of Australia in the metropolitan context. What's not to like about the proposition of Australian cities? Except when you get to Australian cities, that kind of high freedom, rich amenity lifestyle that is promised is only available to a very small number of people. And large numbers of people end up living in rather monotonous, very poorly serviced, limited infrastructure, low design quality, low amenity, suburban monotonies that don't fulfill the Australian dream. So the thing about Australian cities is that the brand is much better than the product. And therefore, the task here is to fix the product. So I think that's the problem. Now, in particular, in relation to housing, the sharp end of the problem is that there has been too much reliance or dependence on the idea that a housing market that prioritizes owner occupation as the primary typology or tenure uh, approach is somehow going to deliver the range of housing solutions that a modern cosmopolitan metropolitan population wants. It simply won't. And there's been too much too much dependence on over-occupation, uh, owner-occupation, which leads to a dependence upon market processes with all of the challenges to do with financing, supply chains, materials, investment cycles, counter-cyclical activities, all of those things that disrupt the market and make it an unreliable producer of housing. If you're depending upon market mechanisms to deliver a single tenure type that you think is going to solve the housing needs of fast-growing urban populations in really attractive cities, you're making a mistake, right? So my view overall is that Australia has an opportunity to fix this problem now. And the reason it can do that now is because we've got this unique moment that you've described as well, when the Commonwealth government is committed to this issue, when the states and the Commonwealth government have a common agenda about it, when the, the property system, the real estate industry, the social housing providers where they exist want to do more about this. Everybody knows that the Australian dr dream is at risk of being corrupted by the failure to deliver the housing solutions that we need. So I think there are three kinds of things that need to happen. Firstly, a, a, a big investment in a diversification of the types and tenures of housing that are available in Australian cities. More public housing, new kind, better quality, nicely designed, more social housing, different kinds of formats, build to rent, yes please, good that there's now been a tax harmonization of that, more social renting of various kinds, more co-owning, more part by part rent, more micro housing, more uh, self-built housing, many, 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 many more tenure types. So the owner occupation will remain the largest single segment, of course, and many Australians will still aspire to owner occupation, but there should be a much wider range of choices for Australians than simply owner occupation or public housing. That's no sense of choice. That's, that's the first change we need to make. The second one is that we need to optimize what we've already got. So we need to optimize land, which means a densification process, 
We need to optimize infrastructure because Australian cities over the last 10, 15 years have invested substantially in their transport infrastructure, but they haven't necessarily optimized the potential of that infrastructure in terms of developments around stations and interchanges and other locations where it should be possible to have a better equation between densification and infrastructure. And thirdly, the optimization of public land in particular. There's lots of public land in Australian cities that's being underutilized, but there are no trusted and confident mechanisms for really developing that land to produce, as it were, a contribution to the solution. So that's the second part, to optimize what we've got, particularly to optimize land and infrastructure. And then the third part, of course, is that we need to unleash a... Uh, an imaginative campaign to win the hearts and minds of the public around what this shift towards a new spatial model not just looks like, but feels like and tastes like and smells like, so that they get a sense in their minds that if we give up the quarter acre block or the monotonous suburb, we'll get something better instead. There's an imaginative hesitation about this transition that architects, urban designers and others need to tackle with imaginative schemes, maybe small scale to begin with, but seeing is believing. And we need to create lots of demonstration projects around medium density, high amenity, well-connected, brilliantly designed, surprising, delighting, enchanting, new housing formats. And I think the Australian people are ready to go on that journey in sufficient numbers for Australia to be able then to enjoy the fruits of its amazing brand and story about its urban life and to anticipate the population growth it's gonna get and provide housing for everyone instead of having this false promise that the Australian dream is possible when for so many people at the moment it isn't. Well, say, uh, Professor Clark, I'm not surprised last night's um, lecture went into a one-hour Q&A uh, after your presentation. Uh, there is so much to unpack there. There's, uh, we could talk for hours, but we can't. Um, I was going to say, though, that to, you know, when... when when you went through those three points, there's there's two things that really started, you know, screaming in my head. One was the word neoliberalism, and the other was the word or the term rather, political courage. Um, <laughs> if you know what I mean, that's uh, two a couple of things that perhaps uh, our politicians need need to think about. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure about neoliberalism. That's not a term I would particularly use, but I think over-dependence on markets to provide housing for a very diverse population of very uh, different uh, positions in an income spectrum is not going to work. But this is not a political point, it's a practical observation. Political courage, on the other hand, I really agree with, but I don't think it's our job to point our fingers at politicians and say, if you had more courage, you would be fixing this housing market. It's our job, particularly for people in the built environment, for architects, for planners, for urban designers, for imaginative and creative real estate people. It's our job to help those politicians uh, 
to produce the demonstration projects, the pilots, the seeing is believing experiences that mean that not so much political capital has to be deployed because we're winning the argument through what we're doing, not through what we're promising we might do one day if politicians take all the risks. What city in the world, Professor Clark, would you, if you had your choice, would you like to uh, move to um, in terms of that, that, that you think has been planned and built to the best possible technology and, and, and methods that we ca have currently available? Which city would that be? Well, I, I'm afraid when you know three to 400 cities as I do, it's invidious to make choices because every city is different. And uh, although I'm interested in city benchmarking and comparison, I'm also much more interested in what makes every city unique. And I, I run a multi-year project called the DNA of Cities, which is about looking at the genetic code of cities and thinking about how those cities are unique and individual. But to answer your question, and rather than to duck it, let's take just a couple of examples. So we spoke earlier about Vienna. Vienna is a world-class city with a ubiquitous transport system that costs one euro a day to ride, with the most affordable housing of any city in Western Europe. It's a capital city. It's a vibrant and productive city with a, uh, it's a, it's a diplomatic city. It's an innovative city. It's a city of culture. But since the Second World War, the city government of Vienna has been systematically investing in its housing supply through effectively its own sovereign wealth fund, what's called the Vienna Holding Company. And that has invested to such a degree in housing that 84% of all of the housing in the city has some kind of public subsidy in it. And the majority of people in the city are renters. And there's no expectation if you live in Vienna that the equity in your home is somehow your mortgage uh, or sorry, somehow your pension or somehow the inheritance that your children are going to get. Housing is an amenity. It's not a tradable asset in Vienna. So that's a really interesting kind of place. Another place that's done a very good job here is Singapore, of course. Singapore, through its providential fund, has created a unique relationship between citizens and state, whereby citizens are, in a sense, obliged to save through their whole lives, where the Provident Fund is both the equity in their home, it's their pension, it's the money they can borrow against for education and skills. It's a lifelong saving mechanism that enables them to participate in publicly enabled housing, but to carry equity with them through their whole lives. So it's a different version to Vienna, but it guarantees to everybody that there will be a home for them if they are willing to invest in their equity and to gradually, as it were, improve their position. So that's very exciting. Um, but there are other cities that I particularly love and the city which I call home, London, is a very interesting city, not because it's perfect in any way. This is a city that is uh, full of bad urbanization as well as good urbanization. But the thing about London is that it has this incredible intergenerational resilience that enables it to reinvent itself roughly once every 50 years to, to become a different city 
from the city it was 50 years before. And this organic ability to change the city and to remake it is something that's very exciting if you're interested in the dynamics of, of what makes a city great and, and what provokes, as it were, the magic of the city to reveal itself. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating, Professor Clark, I'm going to say. That was, uh, um, yeah, it was very eye-opening uh, and, and very uh, interesting from to compare how you see things from an Australian point of view, how, you know, we've, Obviously, growing up, seeing things differently, but uh, no, um, absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I missed your uh, your presentation. Maybe next time I'll, um, I'll, ma I'll make the thousand kilometer trek <laughs> to uh, to come and see you. But thank you very much for your time, Professor Clark. I'm not sure it would be good for your carbon footprint to make the thousand kilometer trek to cut to come to the lecture, and I'm sure a recording of it w will be available. Um, let me just say that I'm not blind to the fact that almost everybody who lives in Australia has grown up with a different set of ideas about what the city is, what good housing looks like, what is the good life. What I'm really saying to you, though, is that stored up in those ideas about the city lie in a, in a, lies, in a sense, uh, a failure to address the opportunities of the present. So I, I am optimistic that partly because of demographic changes, partly because the Australian population is becoming more diverse, more cosmopolitan, partly because people as they age now have different preferences and some of them want a more urbanistic life. People who are younger are less protective about the equity that they might have in their home. I think we're on the brink of some substantial changes here in Australia that I think could be embraced. And that doesn't mean we have to give up on the model that so many Australians love of the quarter acre block and all of that. But we have to find room for other types and tenures and modes and formats within that. And it's the architects, the urban designers and the planners that need to lead this agenda in so many ways. So I hope some of your listeners will feel emboldened to go out there and to promote uh, solutions themselves and certainly not wait for the politicians to do it for them. I'm sure after listening to this, Professor Clark, they'll be not just involved but also inspired. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Greg Clark. Thank you. Great pleasure. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Brank Homiletic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.